following announcement has been paid for by the WZWA Network. Hi, everybody. This is former WWE superstar Al Snow. And- CWN is Sean Oliver. My name is Eugene. And you are watching the Insider's Edge podcast. Now get on the train. Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome to the podcast in conjunction with the WCWA Network. Your host for this evening is California in Fury. What does everybody want? And we're going to get him right here. It's not Head, though. It's Al Snow. I'm very excited. Of course, man. We do have Al Snow here with us tonight. And Al, how are you doing tonight, my friend? I'm doing great. How are you guys? We're very excited to have you here uh, tonight. We're extremely excited. You know, it is 11.08 p.m. where we are here in Perth, Western Australia. What's the time over there where you are? 11.08 a.m. in uh, the United States. (laughs) Whereabouts in the United States are you residing at the moment? I live in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, it's on the Eastern Standard Time Zone. So, you know, awesome. we're exactly 12 hours, uh, I think, behind you guys. So. Yeah, that's exactly, yeah. exactly 12 hours. Now, so as uh, usual with um, the podcast with all of our guests, we do like to start the show off by, you know, uh, talking to our guests about how they became a wrestling fan, their early life, you know, just that sort of thing. What was, uh, what was the influence for you sort of getting into the business? Uh, well, I grew up um, in Ohio, in Northwest Ohio. Um, and, uh, that would be back in the old regional territorial days. So that was, uh, Ed Farhat's, uh, territory, which was the original Sheik. Um, he owned all of pretty much Michigan, Ohio, uh, expanded over into Western Pennsylvania, down into, uh, Northeastern Kentucky, uh, over into what Eastern Indiana. He had a big, pretty massive territory and it was always a, uh, prime territory. And the reason why is uh, especially in in the state of Ohio, um, there were so many major uh, population centers that were within two to three hour drives of each other. But at that time, because of the lack of uh, the cable television and the internet, um, each one of those major population centers were, you know, they didn't know what went on in say two hours away. So you could make the loop from one town to the next and, and pretty much hold the same show each night. And it would be a brand new unique show for that particular area at that time. And, um, you could draw, you know, massive audiences in the tens and 10 to 15,000 people in each one of those towns every single night, Monday through Sunday. Um, so it was a very big money-making, uh, territory for a very long time. And it was a, a, a very prime spot for a lot of people wanting to try to try to steal it, try to make their way in. Um, and I grew up watching that. Um, lots of different wrestlers over the years, guys, names that you guys probably wouldn't even know who they were or recognize. But, uh, and then about, I don't know, about 1976, around in that area, um, um, we had the advent of cable television, which I know is crazy for you guys because, you know, there was a world before that where they had no cable television, no cell phones, no internet. And, uh, and WTBS with Turner Broadcasting came in on Saturday nights and uh, Georgia Championship Wrestling. Um, between that time, the Sheik's territory, Ed Farhat's territory, had went under. So there was really no wrestling, hardly at all, And then uh, for a few years. And then it came in when I was about 12 or 13. Um, I started watching that. 
And I made the decision when I was 14 years old. That was it. I was going to be, that was what I was going to do. I was going to be a professional wrestler. There was no ifs, ands, or buts about it that I was going to, um, that was going to be my career. And, uh, and, you know, started trying to pursue it at that time, um, which wasn't easy. Again, no internet, no Google. So I had to physically, because I didn't have a driver's license at that point, walk to the public library, uh, pull out uh, some of the phone books for some of the major cities they had in the United States. Because in the wrestling magazines back then, they would say where like the major promotional offices were located, what city. So I just went and found one for Minnesota, which was Minneapolis, which was where the AWA office was. And I looked through and found their phone number and I went through and Charlotte, North Carolina, which was where Crockett Promotions was, uh, Memphis, Tennessee, which was where the uh, um, promotions for, uh, you know, Mid-South Wrestling, Jared and uh, Lawler and uh, Eddie Graham in Miami or Tampa. And I just went and pulled every one of those phone books, looked up the offices, and then about once a month, I would call them. And uh, at that time, it was very hard. There weren't a proliferation of wrestling schools like there are now where anybody could just walk in anytime, any place. And, you know, and you got the money, plunk it down and Hey, you're a wrestler. It wasn't that easy. And, um, so I would call the offices and, you know, after a while they would just get to the point where they'd recognize my voice and either hang up on me or, you know, they'd, if they were bored, they'd talk to me for a couple minutes, you know, and try to talk me out of becoming a wrestler and, uh, just kept doing that. Finally, when I was 18, I found a guy to train me and, uh, you know, I went from there to uh, go on to have a 38-year-old career. Awesome. That's probably the best way to summarize it, really. You know, all that struggle <laughs> and you end up getting the, uh, the big payoff with the awesome career, man. So that's what we're going to dive uh, straight headfirst deep into uh, this evening. Um, but I wanted to sort of go back again to uh, when you were trained. So correct me if you were wrong, you were trained by Ollie Anderson. Is that correct? No, uh, I uh, went to a tryout um, with Ole and Gene Anderson. Right. Yeah. Um, then, uh, you know, had uh, went to Charlotte, North Carolina. In the, before that, I'd met a journeyman wrestler who was uh, just going into semi-retirement, wanting to start his own promotion by the name of Jim Lancaster. And uh, uh, Jim wasn't interested in training anybody. He tried to foist me off onto Al Costello uh, up in Detroit who was starting to just train some guys. Um, he had no, no desire because back then, like it was a risk, you know, you were held accountable for whoever you brought into the business. So if somebody came in and, you know, they did bad business, then it would result in you probably getting blackballed or, you know, not being able to make a living. So not guys weren't too keen on, uh, uh, doing it. And, um, you know, they, uh, as a result, it was very, very difficult to get in. And um, that's what the term protect the business means. It's not what you guys think is kayfabe. It's, that has nothing to do with protecting the business. Protecting the business was not letting anybody in it. Um, because it only takes one person to, uh, to kill the business. And uh, um, so they were very, very reticent about letting just anyone in. So um, I'd... Uh, during all those phone calls, I'd gotten a hold of uh, Gene Anderson in the Charlotte booking office in Crockett's territory, and he informed me that in October they were going to have a tryout. And I was like, well, I'm coming. And, uh, you know, sold my car and 
took a 24-hour bus trip down to Charlotte, North Carolina, walked five miles from the bus station out to the uh, Charlotte Coliseum and uh, got basically tortured and beat up for several hours and <laughs> came back and watched the show that night, rode home and went back and met Jim Lancaster again. He had uh, had just uh, had been starting running promotions himself and um, was trying to make a do a show with at the time was a, a pretty top baby face in the area in the Midwest by the name of Spike Huber was Dick the Bruiser's son-in-law and uh, Dick uh, went went sideways on the deal had Jim had Spike booked but Dick pulled Spike and sent him to St. Louis and um, uh, Jim was upset so he went to his own crew of guys and that's how he was more he was willing to train me and uh, I got trained and uh, had my first match May 22nd of 1982. That was such a long time ago, man. <laughs> it's so crazy, man. I like, and um, I was even looking around tonight. Like, I didn't even realize how long you have been wrestling for when I was doing some of my research. Um, absolutely insane, man. You've been working very long time. You're still working around today as well, aren't you? Like, here and there, some independent promotions. Once in a while, yeah, yeah. Once in a while, I just don't have quite the same amount of time um, because of being involved so heavily with OVW and everything. The responsibilities with that are monstrous so i just it's hard for me to take time away to go and um to wrestle but people still reach out still contact me and have an interest in wanting to bring me in and uh put me in the ring so you know and I'll, I'll do so um but i'm getting to a point where i think i just can't perform like i should i can't move like i should i don't i don't like that so um i won't you know i won't do it as much anymore it would be awesome to absolutely see you hit the 40-year mark, man. That'd be a huge milestone. That's a, that's a long time for any wrestler, man. Yeah, true. It is. I want to um, go to your 1993 run um, under the name of Steve Moore in the uh, WWF. This would have been your first run there. How was that uh, experience for you, sort of uh, being in the, on such a big stage for your first time? Well, um, it wasn't a, a run. I wish it was even. It was just a couple of days. Yeah, fair and, enough. Uh, you know, and um, <laughs> I was brought in uh, just simply as a job guy, which, you know, for people that don't know what that means or, or they misuse the term because they think job guy means that you lose all the time, which is not the case. Um, uh, job guy, in the, uh, in the uh, old days, like uh, if you were a wrestler and you were in the territory and you worked TV, they didn't pay you for TV. Um, you made your money on the live events. And the reason they didn't pay you for TV was because it was an opportunity for you to sell yourself. So whether you won or lost on TV, now you were more of a factor in how many people showed up at the building because when they put your name on a poster, they would recognize you from TV. There was where you made your money. Um, if you were a job guy, they would bring you in just for TV. You didn't make money on the live events. You weren't booked there. And... Um, uh, you just came in primarily to work those TVs and usually you did two to three tapes a week. You know, when they did them, they do two or three tapes at the time. So you do two to three weeks. So you might wrestle two, three, four times in one day. <clears throat> and um, it was, it was a job. You were paid for a task because you were came, coming in for one day and then you were leaving. So hence the term job guy. It wasn't a derogatory term like all of you use now, like, oh, he's just a job guy because he loses. Um, winning and losing don't matter. 
you know uh, it, it, what matters is what you do with the time when you're in the ring and um i would you know go out to uh i brought came in um to wwe at that time uh as an enhancement talent as a job guy basically and i chose the name steve moore because i didn't want to use the name al snow um to work under um because i was still working in other places as al snow and i didn't want to you know have that affect how well i drew in those places um you know it didn't behoove me to go in and work and and be at the very bottom of the card where uh, the promoters relied on me to be at the very top of the card for them elsewhere so i used a different name and um it was fun i mean it was a fun couple of days and you know i got to work with taker and marty for the first time and billy and bart gun and you know we had we had some good matches um and then that was the end of it they didn't they didn't contact me again or or anything like that it was just a one and done and moved on before i throw it back over to carlo um wanted to sort of speak about your time training with dan the base severin for his uh time at the ufc uh what were the memories sure. of your time being at the ufc in the uh because that was a time where it was very barbaric it was much much different how it is today what are some of your memories of being at the um early ufc events well uh <clears throat> that's a big misconception that it was more barbaric because it wasn't. Um, it's actually a little more barbaric and a little more violent now because they've changed okay. the rules specifically because it's easier for you to relate to it. Um, they try to create the rules to where the fighters stay more standing up for longer periods of time, thus striking each other more often. Um, back in the day, in, in real fights, nine times out of 10, within about 10 to 15 seconds, somebody's going down on the ground. And then, you know, it get, becomes a grappling contest. Strikes aren't as effective, um, nor are they nearly as damaging as yeah. they are if you're standing up. Um, you know, the power derived from a punch is the, matter of, is the amount of uh, speed you can throw it um, so that it creates velocity, which creates power on the impact. It's like throwing a baseball or a cricket ball. Um, faster you can throw it, the harder it hits. You're down on the ground, it's kind of hard to throw it fast enough to really do any real damage. So it's a big misconception, but the UFC was dramatically different back then in the sense that it was uh, an actual tournament. You had to fight, if you won your first fight, you had to fight a second. And if you won the second, you finally fought the main event, which was third. Um, and you did not know who you were going to face prior to going. Unlike now where it's a singular opponent um, with everybody has primarily a lot of the same style. They have a ground game, they have a you know, stand-up game, striking, um, submissions. Uh, you know, they all had that to some, you know, they all have that now to some degree. It has, it's, it's, it's become its own style. But back then, like when Dan went, um, you know, the first guy he fought was a Muay Thai guy. Uh, strictly was Muay Thai and then the second guy was a long style karate and then the third guy was Hoist Gracie which was jujitsu so there was no way to prepare there was no way you know we had no idea what we were getting into we, you know our, the training camp wasn't I mean, we were just making up stuff as we went along and <laughs> luckily you know Dan's like a human grizzly bear um, you know he can just go in there and maul people and uh, you know being a part of it was very interesting there were a lot of really interesting characters there you know, um, they're just as, they're even probably more eclectic and eccentric than some of the old time wrestlers are. Um, you know, they were, they were pretty crazy. And, uh, and, but being a part of that, you know, 
created an opportunity for me with Jim Cornette and Smoky Mountain Wrestling and, you know, um, uh, which got me an opportunity in WWF and, and away we went. So. Well, right. Oh, um, Al, I, uh, I have to actually, Jack, I have to apologize to you. I, cause I was the one that did the, uh, wrote the questions out. I was the one that wrote <laughs> no the problem. word. I was the one that wrote the word barbaric and, uh, no, 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 that's fine. I try to, <laughs> I try, you know, the, Whenever I see or hear a misconception, I try to clear it yeah, up. Yeah, actually, no, fair it's e- that's you know, in this day and age, there's a lot. It's very easy for people to take a misconception and, yeah. and you know, create it into a um, you know, as if it's a fact, you know, yeah. um, you know, and and propagate uh, a misunderstanding into something that it actually isn't. And it's like, so for me, it's just a personal thing where I just always, if I hear something like it, I'm like, well, hold on. I know this is what you think. Now let's hear what the truth is. You know. Yeah, no, I, found, I totally get you. I still found it to be a really interesting point, though. I'm not a big MMA, UFC guy, or anything like that. Like uh, pro wrestling has sort of been my, you know, my taste in that. If you if you want to categorize all of them together, pro wrestling would be my th- sort of thing to go to. Um, so I, I found it to be a really interesting take about the um, how this the new UFC is actually much more brutal, or not more brutal, but barbaric than the uh, old UFC because you know all the fans and everyone hypes on and um, about how the old UFC was this and that because you'd have a karate guy fighting you know uh, a sumo wrestler or something ridiculous and the sizes in, com- in comparison were just crazy so to me I just uh, I thought as well that it was uh, more quote-unquote again barbaric um, but you know I, I thought but that was, was the way they, they that's the way they they marketed it and they sold it at the time yeah. which yeah helped them draw but then it ended up backfiring that's what what created such a backlash against them um uh in the united states was and got them banned from a lot of places and not allowed to run was because they had created this perception that it was this ultra violent you know and and trust me it is it is violent but it, in a lot of ways it's a lot safer than say a boxing match that there's 15 rounds where you're repeatedly taking you know, shots, concussive shots to the head. It's, yeah. you know, they're much shorter. The strikes aren't, you know, nearly the same. You know, it, it's, it's, it's not nearly as barbaric as they tried to make it out to be. So they, they were successful on one hand, but they ended up shooting themselves in the foot on the other <laughs> with their marketing plan. <laughs> no, you made a very yeah. good point on that. Yeah, no, I agree. Like as soon as Al started, as you started explaining it, I'm like, oh, he is actually so right about that. Like you can only punch someone as hard as you can with a, with a bare knuckle uh, only so many times before your hand's going to end up breaking on their head. So, I mean, you got to find out other ways of, of beating them as opposed to having a, a glove on and being able to punch them as hard as you possibly can without, you know, having to pull back a little bit because it's not a bare, bare fist. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, um, I wanted to fast forward a little bit to 1995 for your short stint in, uh, extreme championship wrestling, wrestling likes of Sabu and Taz and, uh, and a match that I remember watching years ago, uh, with you and Chris Benoit, which was one of them from what I've read online was one of the matches of the year of 1995. Um, and it really was tremendous. Uh, why didn't you stick around in ECW too long in 95? Um, one was because Paul didn't have any real plans for me, um, which is fine, um, you know, but I, Jimmy had called me because around that same time was the UFC and he had seen me and uh, seen me on that uh, interview 
that Dan was supposed to do on the uh, second fight um, at the end of the second fight. And I got kind of, a, it was a little bit, of, I can be a little bit of a sarcastic smart ass and uh, <laughs> condescending. Uh, and he, uh, he saw a personality, he saw uh, a character. Cause at that time I had known Jimmy for many, many years, probably 10 or 10 or 12 or 13 years. And, you know, he never had an opportunity or never had an interest in Smoky Mountain for me. And um, when he saw me that night on the uh, the uh, pay-per-view, um, it just triggered something for him. And he reached out and I told him, I said, hey, I'm, I'm already in ECW. Uh, you know, could I work both places? He said, yeah, I have no problem. I have no issue. I mean, you're more than welcome to work both places if it's cool with Paul. He's, I said, okay, I'll, I'll call Paul and, you know, I'll, uh, I'll let you know. And um, I called Paul, uh, or I talked to Paul the next time I was at the show, and, and I said, Paul, I got this opportunity in Smoky Mountain. So like, that's great, terrific. And I said, yeah, you know, he, Jimmy says he has no problem issue with me working both places if you don't. He goes, no, not at all. I said, okay. And then he just never booked me ever again. So, <laughs> I could see that coming. <laughs> yeah. So oh, he, he, he was all fine with it, but he never booked me again. So. <laughs> um. Speaking of your time with Smoky Mountain, uh, you end up being tag partners with Kane, who was known as Unibomb at the time, and you got to work quite extensively with the Rock and Roll Express. Um, how was that experience for you? I was awesome. It was just, it was, you know, if I knew then what I know now, I could have capitalized even more on it and really could have taken really more advantage of it and gotten even more heat as a heel. But, uh, you know, I was I was focused on the wrong things, looking along, you know, in the wrong places, and um, you know, going trying to go out there and have a great match as opposed to becoming a great attraction and drawing more money. Um, a lot of the same mistakes I see a lot of people making today. You know, it's it's a, yeah. you know, but uh, you know, it was awesome. I mean, it was just it was so easy. It was so much fun. It was every night we just we go in the ring and just have so much, so much fun, so much fun. Cool, yeah, and it's crazy to see, you know, last year, I believe it was, when the Rock and Roll Express win the NWA World Tag Titles again after all these years. Still <laughs> going, and, and they're still good. They're, they really are still good. They're great. They're not good. They're great. Yeah. I mean, they, they know, you know, what Ricky is like just the epitome of an amazing worker. You know, what what the real word worker means not what you guys call it but what it really intones he he really is the epitome and robert too robert you know robert's brother ricky ricky uh gibson was in the business prior to robert and you know ricky was really was really a good hand and you know passed that on to robert and, you know ricky morton his dad had been in uh, professional wrestling as a wrestler and a referee and you know so ricky grew up around the business and has been in it for Jesus, longer, a lot longer than me. So. Absolutely. Um, so uh, it, after your time with uh, Smoky Mountain, you signed with the WWF in 95. And you almost follow a similar path to Kane, who gets signed at the same time, being thrown into various different gimmicks, like uh, Avatar, Shinobi, and uh, Leaf Cassidy and the New Rockers, whilst Kane is given fake Diesel and Isaac Yankum. Um, if you had to keep two of these gimmicks and kill three, what would you choose? Two and kill three, but I've only I think I only had three. <laughs> I had Leaf Cassidy and um, uh, uh, I mean I mean uh, counting, I meant counting Kane's gimmicks as well. 
Oh, counting Kane's gimmicks. Oh, <laughs> uh, the the fake Diesel thing worked really well for Glenn. Glenn, you know, <laughs> actually, Glenn started getting it over. Yeah, uh, and started making it work. Um, it just it wasn't the right thing to do business wise because all it did was call attention more to Kevin Nash and Scott Hall and what they were doing than WCW. Yeah, um, awesome. that was the that was the only downside uh, for that. But he actually was starting to it was starting to get over. Um, the avatar gimmick, like if I knew then what I know now, um, I could have done much more with it and the opportunity that presented, but it just, you know, I went from being a heel and I'm not making excuses, but I went from being a heel for 14 years and just recently having a run as a smart ass chicken shit running my mouth kind of heel to now becoming this mysterious baby face that put, you know, carries a mask out, puts it on and then transforms um you know and and vince gives you these gimmicks these 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 you know characters because you know he's trying to create a definable personality so that the audience can connect with you they can describe you they can know who you are and you know um when that that's the most important thing and uh without that you don't have anything and uh you know it's up to you to make them you know, it's up to you to, to, to take it and, you know, use your artistic freedom to try to, you know, um, put it together to where it makes it, make it work. Yeah. Um, and I didn't with Avatar and Leaf Cassidy worked. We had a good run. Um, it just that when Marty, you know, as far as a team is concerned, Marty wasn't, had, didn't have his heart into it. Um, right. really didn't have full interest because, you know, and I don't blame him. I mean, he had, um, he felt like it was not doing, the respect to what he and Sean had done and, and, uh, and I got it, understood it. So, yeah. you know, it had, a, had its run and then, and then it died off and Marty left and, you know, I was left on my own and, um, and again, trying to come up with that definable personality, um, you know, that some first, you know, that's the hardest thing to learn. And sometimes it takes the longest to figure out, but when you do, that's where, that's when you really start to make money. Right. I mean, at this point, you, you, you've been established now, you know, you're not wearing a mask. So you're established now as Leif Cassidy um, and you're in the new rockers. But then, as you mentioned, Marty did leave the company. Were you worried about your job security at that point and um, where they were going to be able to go with you now that you were mm-hmm. kind of defined as being a, a member of the new rockers? No, not at all, because I had started taking the Leif Cassidy because of my own bad attitude and my own frustrations at the time and me pointing the finger at everybody else instead of taking the blame on myself. Okay. Uh, I was developing a really shitty attitude and, you know, uh, that frustration and stuff, I started manifesting in the Leif Cassidy gimmick. And, yeah. uh, you know, and so I was taking it in a whole different direction anyways. So it didn't, didn't matter. You know, I felt confident that I could still do what I needed to do. That was the problem. Right. So I felt frustrated and felt like I could do what I needed to do. And I felt like they weren't giving me the opportunity when every time I went to the ring, they were giving me the opportunity. So, you know, uh, it took a while and a lot of time and distance to finally and maturity to figure that out. Right. Uh, Jack, take us to ACW, my friend. You returned to ACW shortly after the, uh, the loan, uh, from the WWF. Now you're just talking about a definable personality. Uh, you came to ECW with the gimmick we all remember and know to love, and that's the, uh, the Al Snow with head. Um, how excited were you to return and to really sink your teeth into this gimmick? 
Well, I didn't have the gimmick when I came there. Um, I just was still Leaf Cassidy to a degree, but I, I went back as Al Snow because the, that audience knew who I was as Al Snow. And, uh, and it took me a while to pick through and try to figure out how to show that I had suffered like a, a, a nervous breakdown. Um, and, um, and that the head gimmick, I mean, I've specifically, I knew when I tried to quit WWF and, um, at the time and they rolled over my contract and wouldn't let me quit. And I was, you know, I got through the grace of, you know, my friend, Chris Candido going to Paul Heyman and Paul Heyman going to Bruce Pritchard. And, you know, they, they put me on loan basically over there. And, um, you know, that allowed me, I went there with the intent that I was going to develop myself and get myself back over to where either, you know, Vince would pay to get me back or Paul would pay to keep me or Eric Bischoff would pay to take me away. And, um, through the grace of God and a plastic head, I was able to do it. So, (laughs) you know, Uh, what lessons did you learn uh, in ACW that would help you in your career later on? Uh, You know, those lessons didn't really manifest and come to be until uh, I was much older and and started training other people more frequently. Um, And that is, you know, the, the, the one, the biggest lesson is, is that nobody, Paul had no plans for me. Paul did not get me over. I got me over. And then Paul capitalized on it. And that's what Vince does. And that's what every promoter does. And this belief that all these wrestlers hold that, oh, all I have to do is just go to WWE and he'll, Vince will make me a star is ridiculous. Yeah. They don't. They'll give you the platform. They'll give you all the tools. They'll make it very possible for you to make yourself a star. But you make yourself a star. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it because – you know, I know that you'll hear, and I'm sure you interview lots of wrestlers, and oh, so and so held me back, and so and so did this to me. Hey, I used to have the same attitude, um, but at the end of the day, when you walk through the curtain, uh, you know, you walk through the curtain. There's nothing anyone can do to help you, and there's nothing anyone can do to hold you back. Um, it's 100% on you as to how you connect and interact with that audience while you're out there, and you utilize that time in the ring to its fullest potential and sell your product, which is you. That's 100% on you. No offensive buts. And the more successful you are at that, the more creative you are at that, the more you give the wrestling promoter something to capitalize on and promote. And if you don't, well, what, you know, what do you want to do? Exactly. Exactly. Accountability is also, it's a very important thing. Uh, do you have any uh, sort of stories of bad things happening to Head over the years? A bit of a sidebar there. No, nobody really bothered Head. Nobody really, you know, surprisingly, nobody really touched it. Uh, <laughs> nobody really touched them. They, they uh, you know, which, thank God, because, you know, if you didn't have any arms or legs and somebody, a stranger, picked you up, you'd scream like a banshee too. So, you know, every time anybody would come near him, they'd freak out. And I'd hear it no matter where I was in the building. So. I know that um, when Perry Saturn had Moppy, a few bad things happened to that mop. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they probably did. Yeah, but my <laughs> head was my head was never violated. So. <laughs> Thank God. Thank God. <laughs> yeah. How did it come about that you were brought to? Uh, <clears throat> sorry. How did how did it come about about that you were brought back to bring this character to WWF TV? Uh, Vince Russo contacted me. He had seen the vignettes and things that I had done. Those were what really got me over. It wasn't the stuff I did in the ring. It was the vignettes yep. um, where I got to show my personality and 
Um, and, and I, what I did was I ultimately created a character that you could turn to your friends and family and go, Hey, there's this guy, he's A, B, C, D, E, you know, um, that was what I'd always been missing. And except for that run in Smoky Mountain. And, uh, um, you know, once I, uh, achieved that, then, you know, that gave Russo an idea of what he could do with it and the stories could tell and interactions and things like that. So he reached out to me and I told him, Basically, I told him, I said, no, I don't want to come back. I have no interest. I'm happy where I'm at. And wow. I'm going to send in my uh, request for my release for my contract again, which I did 90 days in advance, like it's supposed to. And um, then we were in Florida. I was staying at Jerry Lynn's house in Orlando. And uh, the show came on and we had the, the opening of the show. They had a brand new opening of the show. And I don't care what, you know, Paul, oh, no, that's not true, which is BS. Um, There's a brand new opening of the show. And a lot of, you know, what you want to try to do is, you know, promote or highlight the stars of the show, the people that are really over that you've got plans for. I was nowhere on that show, opening oh, the show. Man. And I was like, well, I can see where this is going. <laughs> you know, um, once I put over Shane. Um, I can see this, uh, my shelf life here is not going to be anymore. So I called Vince Russo back up and at that, you know, I sent him a videotape of all the stuff I had done that he showed Vince McMahon and Vince McMahon called me and I came back in and that was it. Awesome. So it doesn't take long, obviously, uh, for around the time, you know, the attitude era head, you know, goes hand in hand. It doesn't take long for the character to get established on TV. So what was the creative process like, uh, sort of back then and how's that changed over the years? Well, the only thing that's really changed is that, um, you know, you were more free back then, you know, it, it was yeah. your responsibility. And then you, you know, from what I understand, because I don't know, I'm not up there anymore, but now, I mean, a lot of what they do is very scripted, um, especially the promos and things like that. And, um, back then it was 100% your responsibility. They'd, you know, I've, I've spoken about this before and it's, it's partly my responsibility because I, I didn't ask questions, but at the same time, they never really communicate. They never communicated to me uh, anything. Um, and then when I mean anything, I mean anything prior to me arriving at TV. Like I never knew what I was going to do at TV until I showed up that day. Never the entire time I was there, um, you know, and I wouldn't hear until sometime that afternoon. Oh, you're uh, doing this tonight. I can clearly remember when we did the Pierre thing with the deer head and all that, um, which, you know, I just went out San Diego one time and they had a swap meet out there around the arena, in the parking lot. I bought the deer head, um, and started, <laughs> you know, doing some vignettes with it. And, you know, it just took off and, you know, the next thing, you know, um, you know, it becomes a whole thing. And I show up in Orlando after Bob Holly had destroyed it. And Russo walks up and goes, Hey, you're going to have to do a eulogy for the deer head. And I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah, I remember this. He's like, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I'm out there on live TV for probably what I think I did the eulogy for probably eight, nine minutes or something, you know, and when you think about it, you know, uh, how much 30 seconds of television time costs, you know, they're giving me eight or nine minutes to do a eulogy for a deer head. And then, you know, <laughs> that's a lot of money, a, you know, and, but and no, no phone call, no heads up, no, Hey, just give me <laughs> the last minute. It, I would walk in. I remember I was doing tough enough uh, in LA and they 
called me like the Friday before, Hey, we need you in Atlanta. You're going to, you know, you got to host Sunday night heat and then you're working with Christian for the intercontinental title in the opening match. I go, what? Yeah. So literally, you know, I get that call Friday night so that Saturday night I fly in Sunday morning, go right to the building. I've got my tights on underneath my clothes when I'm doing commentary for heat. I run to the back, pull them off, throw on my boots and walk right out and do the first match on the pay-per-view in Atlanta. Shit. So, you know, and they, and nobody would ever call me. Nobody would ever speak to me. You know, they just, they just stick in there. Um, you know, nowadays, I guess they, they really go through a lot and produce a lot over, I think they overproduce it. Really. Definitely. Uh, it definitely. Yeah. I think they really overproduce it, but that's, that's a lack of confidence in, you know, the talent, uh, in the talent, knowing what they need to do and being able to pull it off. And, but unfortunately for the audience, it doesn't allow for a talent to really be who they really are and connect. Yeah. Um, with the audience in a way that you, that the talent back in the day used to. Just too much red tape these days. It just seems like uh, someone's got an idea by the time it gets through the eight levels that it needs to get through before it gets the final say, it's already been changed a million times. Well, that's why some, it's better to ask for forgiveness than it is to ask for permission. Absolutely. Because once you get out there, it's your show. You can do anything. Yeah. But it better be good, and you better work, and it better do business. Because if it doesn't, you're not going to get the opportunity again to do it a second time. Yeah. But guys are now. I feel. I feel. I'll say something. I always try to say something controversial on every one of these interviews I do, so that it helps <laughs> to create interest and drive someone to want to watch it. No, oh, appreciate that. Um, and here's the the one for today. Um, I think that one of the biggest mistakes in professional wrestling is the advent of the guaranteed or downside guaranteed contract. Here's why. Uh, In wrestling, in entertainment, okay, the only value you have, no ifs, ands, or buts about it, is this if I put your name on a poster or a promoter puts your name on a poster, let's say, how many tickets are, is just your name? No one else, not wrestling, nothing. How many tickets is just your name going to sell? If the answer is none, that's what you're worth. Okay. Don't care what you think. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how many moves you can do. If no one will buy a ticket to see you, then your value is zero. Simple as that. Um, And the problem is that once you, in wrestling, once you get, let's say, that downside guarantee, which really is the best way to do it, because now you're, the talent are guaranteed they're going to make at least X amount of money a year, but uh, potentially they're unlimited to make who knows what. But for the talent, what happens is they now start to think of it as a job and that they have something to lose if they make a mistake. So they don't take any risks. They don't take any chances. They don't, they're not, you know, uh, fearless because, you know, they're now they're no longer, Hey, I've got everything to gain and nothing to lose. They've, 
they've got something to lose. They've got that downside guaranteed to lose. Um, where if they just go out and they play it safe and they do what they're told, they're going to just keep plugging right along. Whereas if they're, you know, like, Hey, I, if I don't, I don't make something of myself. I don't create something of myself. If I don't make myself a star, I'm not going to make any money. If I'm not going to make any money, I'm going to starve. So there's a whole different mindset between the two. And I think that giving people, giving performers a little bit of that cushion, that belief that they have a safety net, that now they have a fear of losing, hampers them, limits them. Um, you know, and if there was some way that you could do both, you could really impress upon a talent that that downside guarantee is just a, a bottom rung and you, you've got no end of limits, you know, um, it, it would be, you'd be fine. But the problem is, is that too many, and even including you guys, you sit there and you believe whenever you hear, oh, oh WWE released a talent, you go, oh, he got fired. You can't fire wrestlers. They're not employees. It's not Walmart, yeah. you know? And that's the problem is that today, a lot of these younger wrestlers believe that they're entitled to a certain amount of pay. They're entitled to things in general. They're entitled to respect. They're, you know, and I can tell you after 38 years, if I'm in a wrestling card, I'm not entitled to anything. I'm not entitled to get paid. I'm not entitled to respect. I ask for a certain amount of money. And you know why I ask for a certain amount of money? Because of my exposure and length of time in the business, I know that there are a certain number of people that will recognize my name in any given area around the world. So that means I have a certain value no matter where I go, as opposed to just the average guy that hasn't had that kind of exposure for that long. That's what makes it different. When I first started out, I was plus one other match or I was additional all-stars or, you know, uh, other exciting bouts. My name wasn't even on the poster. So as a result, there, nobody in that building showed up to see me. So my yeah. value was literally nothing. Okay. And if that's the case, because too many, too many guys limit themselves and their opportunities these days, because they feel like they're entitled to get paid a certain amount of money without actually going and taking advantage of the opportunity that's presented to them and making themselves into an attraction that now is worth that amount of money they say they are. And it's too bad which then conversely, when they go and they get to WWE, they get a downside guarantee contract. They start thinking, because it's a guaranteed check every two weeks, that it's like working at Walmart when nothing could be further from the case. It's not working at Walmart. You're only worth how many tickets you'll be able to sell. And Vince is putting an investment in you and he's expecting to get that money back. Plus, and if he can't, that's when you end up getting released. And not to mention, you have such an incredible platform that you can make yourself such an attraction that even when you get released from WWE, you can still have a career for years and years and years on your own. If you use the time when you were in WWE to its best, you know, to its fullest advantage, as opposed to just riding through and thinking, okay, I'm just going to get paid. I'm going to get this check. Yeah. So it's too bad. But now that's going to, that might upset some people. Um, that I said that, which is good because then that'll make people want to watch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of uh, young wrestlers should listen to that and take a lot from it and learn. Yeah, well, they're, they're, here's the thing. It's a <laughs> skill in life that is one of the most important skills you guys have to learn is learn how to listen and tell you how few know how to do it. 
Um, I own OVW and I tell every one of them the same thing. And that is, I don't like giving advice because if you're smart enough, I don't need to tell you. And if you're dumb enough, you ain't going to listen anyways. <laughs> very good. Carl, you're up. All right. Well, uh, uh, the, this next part, I'm very excited to hear your thoughts on because I'm wearing the shirt. Uh, you soon formed the job squad with Bob Holly and Scorpio and are later by, uh, joined by uh, Gilberg and the Blue Meanie. How did this idea come about? And when you look back, how do you feel about that group's run together? Well, if the, uh, the job squad started, started me just being a smart ass in WWF and in the lunch, the catering room with Jim Cornette one day. And, uh, you know, I just made a joke about, um, and again, this was during my bad attitude period, um, <laughs> about the fact because everybody had a gang uh you know uh, we had the los Bariquas, you had all these different gangs and that were on tv you had the heart foundation los Bariquas, and you know everybody had a faction and i was like well jimmy i'm gonna start my own gang and he's like what are you talking about like, well, i'm gonna start the most powerful gang here he goes huh i go call it the job squad you know <laughs> it's gonna be me barry horowitz chris candido uh, uh just incredible um I had about four or five guys and uh, he goes, you're out of your mind. I go, we're going to be the most powerful guys here. He goes, how's that? I go, okay, here's how it works, buddy. Because I had got, I was getting pissed because there were a lot of people up there that had forgotten that the only reason you win is because I let you or somebody yeah. told me to let you. <laughs> so they actually thought they were winning, you know? <laughs> and uh, I said, uh, Undertaker goes out there and tombstones Barry. Barry gets up and dusts off his head and walks out. Who had the power in that match? I said, exactly. I said, because there's too many people here that think that they're really winning and we're really losing. And that ain't the case. I said, so um, it kind of took off and it was just a joke. And Meanie and I kept joking about it, you know, because I stay in contact with Meanie all the time. He's like a little brother to me. And I went to ECW and Candido knew about it. And they're all like, you need to make T-shirts. You need to make T-shirts. And I'm like, I don't know if I, you know, I don't, I don't know about that, guys, because you know, there's still part of me in there. I was like, um, you know, but the, to the to the fan base of ECW, which is a marginal or niche fan base, I was like, okay, it works. So uh, I made shirts and, you know, with Jeff Jones. Jeff Jones was awesome. Uh, he helped out. He helped me with it. Back then, it was like the start of the internet, really. And uh, he, uh, we sold T-shirts on the internet and at the shows. I think probably between probably May of that year and October, because around October, November, I went back to WWE. Um, I must have sold probably 3,000, 3,500 T-shirts at wow. 25 bucks a shirt, you know, which is impressive. Yeah. But <clears throat> this, I use this as a good example to explain to uh, young wrestlers. <clears throat> do you want to be Al Snow Job Squad successful or do you want to be Steve Austin t-shirt successful? In a short amount of time, I sold about th over 3,000 t-shirts at 25 bucks a shirt. That's before internet commerce even started. That was where people had to mail me a physical check. I had to deposit the check and then physically mail them back a t-shirt, okay? Uh, or I've sold them at the shows. In that time, I sold that many t-shirts and it was so popular that WWE licensed the job squad wanting to market it for me. 
The issue was they had no idea how to sell it to a general audience because it was strictly a wrestling audience based merchandise idea. Only people who were real and hardcore wrestling fans, smart fans would understand what it was. So you have Steve Austin who has shirts in every major outlet store in the United States or you have Al Snow's shirts that sold a large amount in a very short amount of time, but only to a very niche audience. And the same goes for you as a wrestler, is do you want to market yourself in a way that attracts just the wrestling fan, or do you want to market yourself to where you attract and become successful with the general audience? You have control over that. Yeah. That's up to you. Too many choose to just be with the, get the immediate gratification and try to market themselves to the wrestling fan. So when I came up to WWE, like, you know, they wanted to license it and Vince Russo wanted to use the idea on TV. But the problem was, how do you use a smart idea in front of a general audience and use it correctly and logically? You can't, you know, and without exposing the business. And then, you know, and this may come as a surprise, guys. I've said this a hundred times before, but, you know, just here in the United States alone, People since the 1920s had known that wrestling was predetermined. They still showed up in droves, in thousands, by the thousands, to pay to watch it because they could believe in the lie. They could believe that it was a, was a competitive situation, that the outcome wasn't predetermined, that we didn't know who was going to win and that the loss and win actually had some kind of consequence to it. Um, you know, and that's quickly spread all over the rest of the world. Um, people still pay to see it no different than they do magic because if you're not a complete imbecile, you understand that magic is not real. <clears throat> They're not defying the laws of physics or gravity, but they are so good at what they do that while you're watching the show, you can sit there and be in awe and amazed and really question, well, maybe what are they doing? I don't know. And professional wrestling is much the same way. So when you have a, a gimmick like the job squad, it, it, you can't, you can't cross the line, but then at the same time, in order to do it right, you have to. And it, it that, therefore, it, it just didn't work. You know, and they put us all together because they, they didn't have anything to do with the other guys and at the time, didn't have plans yeah. and wanted to try to work it together to where they maybe could get a rub and, you know, we could generate something. But it, 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 we were stuck in where we were to be rebels, but couldn't rebel because if we rebelled, we'd have to cross that line and explain why we're rebelling. All right. Interesting. Um, I mean, I really enjoyed everything that took place on TV at the time um, with the group, uh, especially, I mean, as it started to wind down and, and was now breaking up with your uh, joining of the hardcore division and going for the hardcore championship. Um, and we're interviewing Bob next week, actually. Um, and I'd just love to hear your thoughts on those matches that you two had together and especially, um, the one where you ended up in the Mississippi River. Um, and I assume there was probably significant shrinkage. Oh, it was cold. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, that was probably one of the dumber ideas I came up with. <laughs> at the time, when I was walking around in that afternoon. Um, well, the you know, it was yeah, the, the Mississippi River. Everybody still talks about it to this day, which yeah. was, is cool. Um, that afternoon in February, uh, I walked around and in the afternoon outside, I was out there without a coat on. So I thought, wow, it's warm, you know, and I saw the river and 
you know, I would go in the afternoon and they'd, you know, I'd, I'd show up and they'd do, oh, you going to do a hardcore match tonight? And then, you know, I'd have an agent walk around with me and so that we could tell the camera was in the truck where we were going. And I'd try to put things in places that looked organic and weapons wise and looked natural. Like it just happened to be there. You pick it up and use it. Um, and I'd always try to build it in a fashion to where it culminated at a, a high point. And that day I knew that going into the river would be the high point. <laughs> so luckily I had the foresight. I, there was an old tire there on the bank. I threw it in and um, in the river and uh it saved my life because when i took the backdrop in the river as soon as i hit i was trying to put my feet down i was like holy crap this is a lot deeper than i expected and it was freezing cold uh you know then bob got in with you know we got in there with me and we were fighting and then bob sometimes you know he's awesome i love working with bob he just he is he's aggressive and he's intense and he'll he'll he won't back down and you can you can be aggressive with him and, uh, uh, but he get sometimes wired up and like, he was grabbing me by the back of the head and stuffing my head into the water repeatedly. Like he was drowning me, you know, he didn't realize it, but he was, you know, that is how you drown people is by putting <laughs> them under, up, under, up, under, up. So I had to thank God the tire was right there. So if you see, you'll watch me grab a hold of the tire and like, I hit him as hard as I can right in the solar plexus. And like, <laughs> stop, you're killing me, you know, um, and he damn near drowned me. But, um, but we, you know, we had a lot of fun doing those matches and, you know, I, you know, a lot of, a lot of stupid shit that we did, you know, that unnecessary risks and things that both of us took, but, you know, it was, it was the spot that we had and, and we wanted to make it as good as possible. And, uh, we had a, we had a good time. We had a lot of fun. Cool, man. Um, one other thing before I throw it back over to Jack, I just wanted to say that I, I really love the match that you had against yourself. That yeah. was just, that's great television. Uh, do you have any story behind that and how that came to be and how you thought of it? Yeah. I, the whole thing is um, when I first started doing the gimmick and I never had this conversation with Vince, so that was my mistake. But everybody just, you know, the, what does everybody want? What does everybody need? You know, it's a double entendre, and I know it, but that was never what it was intended to be. Yeah. Um, if you pay attention, you'll notice as I say it, I get angrier as I'm saying it. And the reason why is because if, in my mind, if anybody were in the position I was in, which the frustration of the lack of success or what I felt was like a lack of success would drive me to have a nervous breakdown and be paranoid and schizophrenic that here I want to be the star. And then and when I go out, I say, what does everybody want? What does everybody need? What does everybody love? And they all chant head, you know, it's, it's making me mad. And the idea yeah. was that eventually I would get jealous and I would turn on the head <laughs> and I was going to have, you know, where I'd attack it back backstage and um, you know, everything that you would do if you were, if you were in an angle with another wrestler, I was going to do with the head. And eventually end up wrestling the head by myself. And um, and I remember we were in Arizona when we did that. It was a pre-tape. Prior to me wrestling myself, it was a pre-tape. And Vince Russo, again, just came and grabbed me. And he goes, hey, man, we need to film this. You know, I want you to be angry with your, you know, that you can't get anybody to wrestle you, this and that. And he goes, what do you want to do? And I go, 
I'm going to wrestle myself. You know, if nobody's going to wrestle me, I'm going to wrestle myself. So I proceeded to throw myself all over the room and, you know, shoot myself in the face with a uh, fire extinguisher, which those things are freaking cold. Yeah, um, it's great, man. It's great. And then the next t- next TVs, he sent me out there to do it, you know, wrestle myself out there in the ring. And, uh, <laughs> you know, um, and people loved it. So champagne television al champagne television i'm telling you i loved it um back to you jack yes uh your next feud was with uh the big boss man which uh was infamous uh with your new friend uh the chihuahua named pepper um tell us in your version the life of pepper in real life behind the scenes and what happened afterwards uh well there's not much i mean uh the dog was a sweet little dog but you know it was not here i've i've had this guy i've told this story numerous times lately and i I never said it before and the only reason it's infamous is because mick foley made fun of it you know and brings it up um when vince russo came to me with the idea um he laid it all out all the way up to you know the final match and i said okay you know so are you willing to do it i go sure um because my one of my biggest mistakes was i never said no and i should have a lot of times and I said, you know, I have no problem doing it. I'll, you know, but we have to have highly trained animals. Like yeah. even Pepper, you, you know, I can't, you can't just give me a dog to interact with that can't interact. That's not trained. I have to have highly trained animals. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. We're going to make sure of that. So listen to me very carefully. From the day one, I'm emphasizing that we have to have highly trained animals. Yep. Okay. So a week or two later, we show up in Detroit and you know, Russo shows up and there's this chihuahua. And what did they do? They basically just called a veterinarian clinic, got a list of owners that had a chihuahua and got some lady to bring their, her chihuahua puppy. So that was it. So this dog's never been taught, never been trained. It's never been in front of an audience. Yeah. And the poor animal, I felt so bad for it because every time the uh, pyro would go off, it'd piss in my hand, it'd crawl all over me. I'm shaking all the time. You know, Ray, yeah. God love him. He'd rip me because I'd have it in my hand. He'd come in, he'd bang the steps purposely with his nightstick so the dog would freak out and piss in my hand. Um, you know, but I, I felt bad for the dog because the I dog remember wasn't watching conditioned. It. Yeah, I remember watching the dog on TV conditioned to be, Yeah, it wasn't conditioned to be, it wasn't trained and it wasn't conditioned to be around in that environment. Um, you know, and at one point they were talking about buying the dog for me. And, you know, I was like, God, oh, please don't do that. I don't need to travel with this thing on the road. And, uh, so I, you know, every week I swear to you on, I swear on my kids' lives every week I'd show up at TV and Hey Russo, you know, we got to make sure we have trained animals for this, you know, kennel from hell match. We got to have yeah, trained animals. There you go. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. We got to have trained animals. Yeah. We're going to make sure we're going to make sure I go, okay, you understand when I mean trained animals, I mean you need all of the dogs from the same training facility and they need to be under verbal commands where a person standing, because my vision of this was the trainer standing outside of the cell, yelling into the dogs, the commands, and the dogs going on attack mode. So they would be like sharks circling the cage, you know? And he's like, oh yeah, yeah, we got it, we got it, we got it, man. Don't you worry, we're gonna, we're gonna have trained dogs. I go, okay. I said, well, you know, we're building the entire crux of the story around the dogs. We need trained dogs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got it. We got it. Okay. So every, this went on for months. The, the, you know, the whole angle went on for months. Now, they put a lot of time into it. Mm. And we get to, 
that Sunday in Charlotte, I'll never forget. I walk in and, and there are 10 people with 10 different dogs standing back there. And I go put my bags in and my stomach and literally just sunk to the pit of my stomach. You know, I walk around, I'm asking, hey man, hey, what are you doing? How's your dog? You, you know, one dog out of 10 had some obedience training. That was it. Wow. So, you know, you've built the entire crux of the story around these dogs. And, you know, um, they're now in the, the owners are on leashes with them in the cell. So they're not threatening. Um, you built the entire story around them uh, that you, you know, you're going to, you know, these dogs are going to be a danger. And um, you can't even show them on TV because they're urinating defecating and fornicating so much <laughs> that they're not even paying any attention to us in the ring. Oh my so God. of course, what a shock <laughs> that, you know, the match was not good because you've just built a story all around one particular item that you can't interact with or utilize at all. Um, you know, and you know, you know, it's your responsibility as a wrestler. Your job is to take shit and make shoe polish, no matter what the situation is and what you're, no matter what you're put in, but I got to be honest, like that was a, that was a no win situation. And what's funny is I'm the only one that anyone holds accountable for it. You know, there was another person that was in the ring with me. Um, and he was just as much a part of the match. And unfortunately for him, um, but you know, everybody wants to bring it up to bust my balls about, you know, because Mick's the one that, you know, made a big deal about it, but it's quite, it was just, we were put in a very bad situation. Yeah. Speaking of uh, speaking of Mick, uh, what was your favorite joke that Mick Foley had made about you in his books? Uh, any of them. Okay, you know he can continue to do that to the to the day he dies. All he does is he just keeps putting me over. You know, just <laughs> makes people point. aware of my name. Very so good point. I could care less. I mean, that's you know, feel free. You know, <laughs> back to you, Carl. Um, this is a random question that I wanted to ask you. Um, the WWF Attitude video game featured yourself and Head as a playable character. Wanted to know if you were paid royalties for the fact that Head was a playable character. Uh, probably not, I'm sure. <laughs> not unless I, <laughs> I go and force the issue. I probably wasn't. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, you teamed with Steve Blackman in 2000 as the ultimate odd odd couple tag team head cheese um and it seemed to get over pretty well uh you know what are your fondest memories of working with someone like steve blackman uh steve's an awesome guy just he's a really uh really awesome guy um and he was a great straight man um yeah. you know and the the most fun we had and the and what really got us over were all the vignettes that we did backstage yeah that was what you know that was great I mean, we, we had such, we had so much fun doing those things with Brian Gortz and, you know, and it was legitimately like, cause they can, they can, even back then they could judge, you know, segment wise, what was getting the highest ratings. And every week on SmackDown, we were getting the highest ratings um, in those little segments. Like people were watching those more than they were anything else. Was it, um, did you, you know, did you ever really pop Steve with your backstage stuff and make him laugh? Cause it seems like he, he's oh, the kind of guy that yeah. will be very difficult to make laugh when he's on he's, the camera. He's very hard to make laugh. He's really hard to make laugh. Yeah, he is. And it's, that's what made it so much fun was cause he takes everything so seriously. 
And, you know, I don't take anything seriously. So, um, you know, so putting the two of us together was what made it, you know, what made it so funny and entertaining. So um, I had a great time with him. He was, Excellent. he's an awesome guy. Yeah, cool, man. Um, you have a, a European championship reign where you really embraced Europe each and every week, which was pretty fun. Um, and, but soon after, you really start to sink your teeth into tough enough as head coach. Uh, I want to know, like, um, in a nutshell, what your best and worst experiences were working on that show. Uh, there were no real bad experiences. I mean, it was – the days were really long. We'd probably do 13, 14, 15-hour days, you know. Um, but, uh, was this where you realized your true calling? Like you found, uh, I'd, I'd had a training school before that and, yeah. in Ohio and had done really well with it. And, um, so I had, I've trained a lot of people. I've been, uh, helped start a lot of careers and, you know, yeah. or helped refine them and, and help them along. Yeah. Um, quite a few. I mean, when I really think about it, but I don't really talk about it, but, um, it was, you know, a time where that was probably one of the more happier times and proudest things I've done in wrestling was being a part of that. Wow. Um, I think that it was such a positive, uh, infomercial for professional wrestling. It was such a great vehicle for talent scouting and for creating and expanding the audience of professional wrestling. Still to this day, I have so many people come up and go either a, I was never a wrestling fan until I watched you on Tough Enough and then I became a wrestling fan or B, my wife or significant other was never a wrestling fan until they want, they all they would watch is Tough Enough and then they wanted to watch wrestling because of the kids from Tough Enough. You know, um, it was just, it was unfortunate that, you know, there was MTV wanted to make a move to where they owned all of their programming at the time so they could, you know, make more of the ancillary money and um, uh, that they aired. And, you know, there was a big contingency within the WWE office that was against politicking, against the fact of using Tough Enough, claiming that it somehow exposed the wrestling business, which <laughs> nothing could have been further from the truth because it didn't. Um, we took great pains to make sure that it didn't. Yeah. Um, you know, and... And the crazy thing is, like one of WWE's biggest competitors is UFC. And the only reason that it had the big, even Dana White said it himself, the only reason yeah. it had the big upsurge that it had was because of Ultimate Fighter, which was a, he said was a complete ripoff of Tough Enough. And, you know, Spike TV had contacted WWE and wanted to do Tough Enough, and, and they said no. And that opened the door for Dana White to do Ultimate Fighter and have the boom of UFC that they've had. Yeah. You know, plain and simple. Absolutely. Um, and before I throw it back to Jack again, as we get towards the end of this interview, um, I want to ask you about the invasion angle that took place during your time off television. Um, and I just want to know from your perspective, if you could explain how you felt they handled the angle and what you would have done differently. Well, the, the you know, that's just, it's assumption and supposition and speculation. Um, and it's just my opinion, but you know, one of the things that Vince has always done really well, and I think he could not break himself out of is if you come from somewhere else, even if you were Ric Flair and you came from somewhere else, you weren't put immediately at the top of the card in WWE. 
The biggest mistakes that I see AEW making today are the same mistakes that TNA made. And that is you'll take a mid-card guy from WWE and you'll take him and put him at the top of your card in one of these other companies. What did you just tell all the fans? You just told all the fans a mid-card guy is better than everyone else on your show. Yeah. So who has the better product? So exactly. subconsciously, you're telling everyone that WWE is better than you. Yeah. By doing that, where they'd be much better benefited to bring in that mid-card guy, let your top guy beat him. Now make him fight his way up from the bottom or the middle all the way back up to the top. And now he's one of yours. And that's what Vince would always do. And he used that same mindset when the invasion angle came in as opposed to letting them come in and dominate WWE, creating heat. Heat's not yeah. a spot in a match. Heat's not an offense. Yeah. Heat's a want or a need where the audience would want to see WWE triumph over these invaders. But you have to first take a back seat and let the invaders get the upper hand, yeah. which is what they did in WCW with Hall and Nash and the Outsiders. They came in and dominated, which made the audience want to see somebody finally build up and knock them off. And that's what they should have done with the, with the invading companies of ECW. And, you know, especially when Shane was heading it up, it should have been Shane comes in and Shane runs roughshod over, you know. But the, the, and the, the biggest problem, though, was that they didn't have a lot of the big major stars that they would have needed to be able to pull that angle off in the in the in the exchange because a lot of those guys were setting out their contracts being paid to just sit at home yeah so if you don't have the tools if you don't have the army it's hard to go to war with so yep i agree um i agree back to you jack speaking of uh sort of relating to the alliance of wcw and ecw uh in 2006 the relaunch of ecw doesn't go so well uh, you are also on the roster, but only you sporadically. Uh, what could WWE have done differently to make it work, in your opinion? Nothing. Nothing? Nothing. Nothing. You all romanticize ECW. You're all <laughs> such dumb shits. Oh, no. Because you, <laughs> you, don't have a clue, you don't have a clue of how the wrestling business really works. No. ECW worked because it was the right thing at the right time for the right reason. And there was an audience there. The reason it didn't work a second time in WWE is because WWE is geared to a general audience, to a mass audience. ECW was marketed to a niche audience. Remember the conversation we had about Job Squad and yep. Steve Austin? Yeah. So WWE is Steve Austin and ECW is the Job Squad. It's marketed to a niche audience, very small, very secular, small percentage of the population. So it's like producing a comic book movie. For those of us that have read comic books and know the characters' backstories, et cetera, we're going to buy a ticket. We know that, right? But if they only produce the movie to where it appeals to just us, they're going to lose money. Because how much does it take to produce a movie? How many millions of dollars? And they're doing it for one reason. It's to make a profit. So now they need to balance and create a product that appeals to and doesn't turn off that hardcore fan audience, but at the same time, allows a general audience to pick up and get involved with the characters and care about and invest to the point that way they spend their money to want to see it and then return to see the subsequent sequels. Because the way that they're going to really make their money is when they start to make a franchise in the movie industry. 
But if you just try to appeal to a small portion of those fans, it won't work. With WWE, they couldn't remanufacture because one, the time had passed. Two, a lot of the talent were no longer a part of it. And three, um, they were trying to balance between a general audience and trying to keep that niche market appeal and you can't do both at the same time. Very good point. I just want to jump in here, Jack, and and, so. and, and ask Al if um, me and Jack as wrestling fans, um, I hope that throughout this interview, you've seen that we admit that we don't know how the wrestling sure, business yeah. works. And then as well, opposed to the normal wrestling fan that you see that thinks they know it all, um, I hope that it at least comes across to you that we are aware. Sure, that... I'm just trying to help or help to, uh, people to understand yeah. so that it, sometimes it helps to eliminate some of their frustration. You know, um, yeah. I always, you know, because that, that question comes up all the time. Well, why didn't ECW work? And it's like you, ram, you romanticize it. You got to remember ECW <laughs> went out of business. And the reason it went out of business <laughs> is for the very reason that it was successful because it was just to a very niche market. Yeah. You know, and, and that's the problem with a lot of wrestling and a lot of wrestlers and a lot of wrestling fans is that they, they think that it should just be marketed to that only that audience and no one else. And it's like, well, you can't survive. You just can't make money. That exactly way. right. And if, yeah. if you can't make money, you go under, you know, it's, it's, it's that simple and you can't listen you, the trick today is because it's a much more challenging time. The trick today is, is that you've got to try to market to a broad audience, but you've got to offer it in some way, some distinct manner. You've got to offer something that's completely different than WWE. Because if you don't, um, you're just going to be WWE light. And no one, I can't emphasize this enough, no one is going to beat WWE at being WWE. It's not going to happen. Not at all. They've got just too many resources. They've got too much experience, too much talent. You, you, can, take some, you can take some ideas and some, and some techniques and things, but you have to create your own vibe, your own feel, your own unique uh, way of doing things. Um, you know, and, 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 but you, you can't just market to the wrestling audience either because, for one, WWE is kind of doing that now. And, and they, NXT is definitely doing that. They're marketing to just a wrestling audience. And then ROH is marketing to just a wrestling audience. Impact Wrestling is marketing to just a wrestling audience. Yeah. Um, AEW is marketing to just a wrestling audience. They're not to the average fan, not to the Mr. and Mrs. Tesco or Costco or Walmart. They're, they're not marketing to them. They're marketing to a wrestling fan, which is fine. But the problem is there's only so many of those to go around, only so many fans to go around, and they only have so much money to spend. Yeah. So you're going to have to try to find some new ground in, you know, where you are marketing to more of a general audience as much as possible so that you can have the best chance of survival. Because you've got to have the numbers to take care of attrition, you know, where you're going to have over a certain period of time, fans are going to start to fall out of interest, and then they're going to pick it back up or... You're going to have some fans that are going to be attending every one of your shows every single time you run, and there are going to be some that are only going to attend every two months, some that are only going to attend every six months. But if you have a massive enough audience, enough numbers, there's always a full house. So you're always able to survive and always being able to be profitable. Yeah. So that's the trick. That's, yeah. why, that's why I hate when I hear Cody Rhodes say that 
the um the term casual fan makes him sick and he doesn't care for the casual wrestling fan i think that's not good for his business he, you should care about that if you want to grow it well that's his that's his choice you know this is his decision and you know it'll you know time will bear it out as to whether or not it's the right direction or not you know um you know but there's just for me there's just not enough a large enough percentage of them to uh survive if yeah. that i know there are more there are more of those those casual fans out there that if i can capture them and i can keep them interested i'll i'll not only get them i'll obviously get the wrestling fan as well and then i'll be able to have a much larger number so. Sorry, Jack. Back to you. I didn't mean to awesome. interject. I just, I just saw something <laughs> there that we could branch off to. But keep going, bro. No, that's great. I've only got uh, one last thing I want to uh, really ask or ask you to more so plug or talk about uh, before I throw it back to Carl before he does five second frenzy and wraps it up. Uh, I wanted you to talk to me about uh, Collar and Elbow, the uh, independent clothing brand you've uh, been running for independent wrestling. Um, what's that idea come about, and uh, what's your uh, what's the goal with uh, that? Is a sort of an awareness for independent wrestling? Is it a way of getting wrestling out or is it more a way of uh, combining streetwear and wrestling fans into sort of one thing? It's really to try and combine streetwear and wrestling fans together. Cause again, I'm trying to appeal to, um, to as large a market as possible. Um, with my partner, Rod, um, when we got to talking about it, we just felt like as far as wrestling merchandise was concerned, you know, uh, you either had the typical wrestling merchandise was usually the, the picture of one of the talent's faces on your chest, which is a middle-aged man. I don't feel like walking around with another guy's face. on my chest. <laughs> Neither do I. Carl, you've been saying that for a very long time. <laughs> um, I, I, my, and, my girlfriend uh, bought me a, a Ric Flair t-shirt for Christmas once. And I only ever wear it when I go to bed. I don't walk around yeah. wearing a Ric Flair shirt. Shirt off. So. Um, <laughs> and the the fact that they they use the old you know the thick heavy you know bulletproof cotton t-shirts and yeah that were uncomfortable they don't really fit and so um we just felt like because football had uh you know its own stuff like under armor and you know basketball had nike and you know all these different different things every all the fans had something it just felt like we needed to do something for wrestling and and we wanted to create some designs that appealed like like tap out used to you know it was yeah. the, it was the MMA thing you know yeah. but if you were tap out you know if you wore a tap out shirt and you weren't an MMA fan you didn't hear people going hey what's up you know is it MMA they just they thought oh that's a cool shirt and that's yeah. what i really wanted to do with collar and elbow was <clears throat> we've all been there you know we you know wrestling fans we wear a shirt that you know, we, we like because it's, it represents something in wrestling and somebody, you know, you go to a party or something, the guy goes, Hey, Hey man, you like professional wrestling? You know, that's fake. And it's like, really? Well, thank you. Uh, Angela Lansbury murder. She wrote, how long did it take for you to put the clues together to figure that out? You know, no kidding. Uh, wow. You, you have just stunned me. I'm going to leave now because I've just experienced a life altering revelation. I really appreciate that. It's like, shut up. Of course, it is. you know, it's, it's, predetermined but now if i you know you create designs and they have some aspect of wrestling in it if you're a wrestling fan you get it you're like oh man that's cool if you're not a wrestling fan you go hey that's just a cool shirt where did you get it okay you know and and so that's what we wanted to try to do was try to create something like that 
And then we came up with, because the hardest part of a new business is marketing because you've got you to market your product, but if you spend too much, you're turned upside down, you can't make a profit, you go under. So we thought of a mutually beneficial way, which was hilarious when we first started doing it because everybody's like, oh, this is a pyramid scheme. I'm like, clearly you've never Googled what a pyramid scheme is, you moron. Because if you had, <laughs> you'd understand this is nowhere near that. Um, but like a lot of independent wrestlers, and I tell the guys in OVW still today, like they'll be, oh, I want to buy a t-shirt. I want to sell t-shirts. I'm like, don't buy them until you're truly over. Because unless you're over, you're going to end up with a box of t-shirts that you've spent several hundred dollars on that you're not going to be able to sell. It's just a fact. You know, you're going to sell a few to your friends and family, and then you're going to be sitting with those up in the attic 22 years from now. <laughs> so just don't do it. But if you have, if we have a, a wrestler, an independent wrestler, you know, he, he doesn't have a name, he doesn't have his own merch, but he, we give him a code that, and he gets a, a t-shirt that he wears and he promotes on social media and he gets code. And then for every t-shirt he sells, he gets 40% of the profit, which is five bucks. Okay. So if he sells a hundred t-shirts, he gets $500, which helps him to make it to the next town, to have gas money, to, to be able to keep doing his career. Um, if he just goes out there and he hustles. Now, if is the biggest word in the English language, it's only two letters, but it carries so much weight. Because if a frog had wings, he wouldn't bump his ass. So I can't tell you the number of people that I have literally given a code to and you and give them a t-shirt that they can then utilize to make money. And you'll see them wear every other t-shirt, like Adidas, Nike, Puma, uh, Under Armour, that will not pay them one dime for wearing. But if they wore theirs and promoted it and got people to buy it, they'd made five bucks a shirt and actually have some money. And they yeah. can't even do that. That's how lazy <laughs> um, But so I, if you, you wear it to the show, you're out at your merch stand, you're taught, you know, somebody goes, oh, that's a cool shirt. Where'd you get it? And you go, boom, here's my business card. Here's the code. Send it in. You get 10% off. Motivate them to use the code. You sell. You get a check the very next, you know, month payout of how much you've sold for each shirt. And you get, you know, you get paid for your PayPal. It was, it, it was simple. And it was a brilliant way to market the brand and to and get people to know it, be aware of it, and to want to buy the shirt. It just the, the downfall was getting the wrestlers to one trust and believe that there was not some kind of scam being pulled, and two, which is just I was accused of it being a Ponzi scheme at one point. Just, oh wow! <laughs> like again, you need to. There's this thing in your pocket called phone. You oh, have this beautiful. God thing called a google you can just look up ponzi scheme and if you have any common sense you'll realize it's not that just it was ridiculous the, the just the, the it was there was a big to do about it and oh my god it was just i was like you've got to be kidding me just <laughs> incredible only in just wrestling gotta be kidding me. only in <laughs> wrestling um uh, al i know we've taken up a lot of your time so far so i've got three questions quick fire um, before I do a little segment we call Five Second Frenzy. Um, first of all, uh, what would the ideal scenario be for you to have your final match and what would you like that to be? Uh, somewhere where I make lots and lots of money. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be it. That's it? That's Anyone it. in mind that you'd like to wrestle? Maybe Bob? 
Uh, or Kurt, I, I think Kurt and I could have put on some really good matches, you know, because he'd be aggressive enough and, yeah. um, you know, I could, I could work really well with Kurt, I think. Um, do you think the WWE Hall of Fame will ever come calling? No. Well, they should because you're brilliant. <laughs> no, they won't. You're fucking brilliant. Um, <laughs> and I appreciate I'll, that. Thank you. Before we get to Five Second Frenzy, which I'll explain in a minute, um, I want you sure. to at least tell everyone out there about the Al Snow Wrestling Academy and also talk about what sure. you're doing with OVW and you know what your hopes and dreams are for Ohio Valley, Valley Wrestling. Uh, I bought Ohio Valley Wrestling or OVW two years ago um, for the express purpose of creating standards um, um, with wrestling and wrestling training. Um, I think a big, large part of the problem within professional wrestling now is that there is a such a proliferation of wrestling schools um, and the fact that there are no requirements or no real standards set for who can be in the business anymore. Back when I was trained, you were held accountable as to who you trained. Uh, you were responsible. They carried your reputation with them and you wanted to make sure that they represented you in the best possible light because if they didn't, it would affect the way you made a living. Now, we're all such whores that, you know, if you have the money, um, they've got the time, they, you know, and anybody can train anybody. All they have to do is set up a ring and put it, put it in the building and ta-da, I'm a wrestling trainer. Yeah. So, you know, it, it upset me so bad um, because wh what was happening was, and I'll try to make this as brief as possible, but um, that year, I forget what year it was, but. A uh, young man out in Oklahoma, uh, where a commission state, boxing wrestling commission oversees everything, poorly trained, uh, very barely trained, got in the ring, had a match with somebody who was poorly trained, uh, you know, did a sidewalk slam, hit the back of the head, uh, had brain swelling, was in a coma for several days, and then died. Um, the number of people that either have a life-altering injury or or have a life-ending injury has been growing exponentially over the last few years because of the fact that there are no standards and no just poor training or or lack of training um because everybody just assumes well i'm a fan i've been watching it for so many years i know what to do nothing could be further from the truth um in the united states if you want to be a licensed vocation be it masseuse uh, beautician barber mortician you've got to go to a state accredited school with a state accredited teacher their standards yeah um and there aren't any in in professional wrestling and i contacted several state athletic commissions and they ignored me and you know i uh, approached the kentucky boxing wrestling commission and same thing they were very short-sighted they ignored me yeah. and so uh things kind of fell together my partner chad miller and i we bought obw and and uh, took us about a year and a half and a lot of time and a lot of money, a lot of effort, but we were, we we're the only accredited trade school for professional wrestling, sports entertainment and broadcasting in the world now. Wow. Um, so we have an actual state accreditation as a trade school. Um, we have state accredited teachers. That means we have to meet <clears throat> state set standards for education. We can't just throw you in the ring, just, you know, like most people, teach you to how to how to land properly, hit the ropes. Here's a couple wrestling moves. Here's how a couple spots are done. Now you can go wrestle. I'm tired of that because of being around on the independents 
Um, and I'm not even talking about aesthetically, but I've seen so many people that are standing in the locker room and they're not physically in any possible ring condition in any way, which now every time you go in the ring anyways, you're going to have a risk, a chance of potentially injuring yourself or your opponent to some degree. And that risk goes up as you are the more or less prepared you are. And if you're poorly trained, you don't have timing, distance, footwork, you know, practiced, you're physically not in condition, you know, eight minutes in, you're <clears throat> chugging like a train and you're wanting to do that cool high spot for no other reason than because you just saw it earlier that week on Raw and you think it's cool and you want to do it. And now your opponent might have a chance of getting hurt or you may too. And, yeah. you know, I, I, I think it's an insult. Uh, bar none. This here's another controversial thing. It might draw, draw some attention, but I think people who treat it that way, it's insulting. You know, I, if you can't, you know, your, your aspirations aren't to go to WWE, which is fine. Um, there were people back in the day that didn't work in wrestling full time. Not many, but there were, there were those guys that just did it, you know, on the weekends and things like that when they could a part-time basis, they always treated it as a profession as being a professional. They were always prepared, they were in shape, and the ones that weren't were ran off because they were, they were an insult to the business. And with the fact that the schools nowadays, anybody can just, oh, oh I'm a trainer, you know, um, they're taking these young men and women's money, um, you know, and, and I implore anybody who wants to get trained to do your homework, find someone who has genuine experience. If your goal is to go to WWE, find somebody that's been in WWE. If your yeah. goal is to travel internationally and wrestle internationally, find someone who's done that, that made a career of it. You know, if, if, if your, your goal is just to become a professional wrestler and you get trained by somebody that we call them a 40, 40 kilometer or 50 kilometer, which means they don't go that far, no further than that from their house every weekend. That's all the experience they're going to have. And they're not going to know or understand or have made mistakes to be able to communicate to you to how, when you get an opportunity overseas or, and WWE or Impact or somewhere else to be able to fully take advantage of because they've never been there themselves. Yeah. You know, find some place where they're actually going to take the time and make you invest in yourself. They're going to make, take the time and make you work for it because being a professional wrestler should be an elite thing. It should be difficult. It should not be where everyone who wants to do it can do it. It should be a challenge, just like rugby. Just like all, you know, every other professional sports, not everybody is cut out to do it. And professional wrestling was at one time that way and should still be today. And it's not. It's now, there are, I forget the numbers, 900 and I forget how many thousand, 900 and some thousand professional wrestlers worldwide. There are in the United States alone over 110 in the state of Kentucky alone, there are over 1,100 licensed professional wrestlers. In the entire world, as far as actual jobs in there in front of a camera that pay more than 50 grand a year, there are only 560. Oh. What are you yeah. going to do to be one of those? Yeah. And if you're not willing to do it, don't lie to yourself. If you're not willing to do the things that people don't do to live a life that other people don't live, then don't do it. Don't lie to yourself and don't let somebody tell you that they can give you the skills if they've never been there and had the experience themselves because they can't. Yeah. 
And and I'll tell you what, you did the right thing by contacting the athletic commissions to try and get some of these clowns to stop teaching people how to wrestle without a doubt, as far as I'm concerned, because there's, there's too many of them. And there's a lot in Australia as well. Oh, boy. Uh, and some of them are going to say, well, you know, you're doing that because you just, you know, you're now competition. You're not competition to me. No. I'll tell you that right now. I operate on a whole different level, okay? Um, we produce a live, we're on episode almost 1,200 weekly television episodes. I uh, try to run an actual territory here where people can make a living being a professional wrestler and nothing else. Not running one show a month, yeah. you know, and bringing in some guy. I actually try to run and operate on a regular, consistent basis and build a territory. I have an, I have an affiliation with a national television network here in the United States. I now have where we're in almost about 12 to 13 different countries internationally. We have our own Roku channel. We have, we're building a platform that you as a professional wrestler could come and capitalize on and get opportunities around the world that no one else has. That's what I'm trying to build here. I'm not here to just run my weekly show that my friends and family can show up and put me over and go, oh, that was great, or get a write-up in one of the newsletters that says, oh, he's really underrated, he's underutilized. No, my job is to try to create something that all of the people that perform for me can have the best opportunity to exploit to go to the next level. So they can get the experience and understanding so that if they get an opportunity in, say, in WWE or they get an opportunity over overseas, they'll be prepared to take advantage of that opportunity to its fullest. Amazing. Amazing. And um, we'll, be, we'll be speaking to one of your um, OVW friends, Ryan Howe, on Sunday for the podcast. So I'm really looking Terrific. forward to that because I think yeah. that guy's just fantastic. Um, oh, yeah. Terrific. Very talented guy. Um, so, Al, we'll finish this off with a, a little segment that I like to call Five Second Frenzy, where you have five seconds to answer each question. It's just a quick fire kind of thing. And even if you break the five seconds, there's nothing I can do about it because we're on the other, side, on the of the other side of the world. And I'm red wine drunk at the moment. So uh, here we go, Al. Favorite match that you ever had? Don't have it. Haven't had it yet. Ooh. Excellent. Favorite opponent that you ever had? Uh, God, Benoit, Candido, Bob Holly. Jeez, uh, there were a couple older guys that you wouldn't know. George South, uh, Ricky and Robert. Um, lots of guys. Uh, what's your favorite meal or food? I uh, love pizza. Nice. I love pizza. Me too. Nice. Uh, what's your favorite film? Uh, a Christmas Story. <laughs> um what's your favorite tv show uh right now i'm digging doom patrol doom patrol i have to check that out i haven't heard of that one uh your favorite alcoholic beverage uh bourbon nice nice your favorite female body part it's a good one uh probably from head to toe nice <laughs> nice very good um and lastly your favorite curse word? Uh, that'd have to be fuck. Um, <laughs> I consider fuck to be like the Swiss army knife of curse words. It can be used in so many different ways and so many different times and is pretty much appropriate in every situation. So. That's correct. It feels so good to say as well. Fuck, Jack, say uh, it. Say fuck, Jack. Fuck. There you go. Okay, Al, so now you, you say fuck. You say fuck too. Yeah, it just and it all depends on the inflection. Like, you know, you go fuck or you go <laughs> 
It's awesome. That was awesome, man. Truly um, multi-purpose. <laughs> <laughs> like a Swiss Army knife, multi-purpose. Awesome, Al. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Uh, we have, I mean, you only said you were only going to give this an hour. This has now been an hour and 40 minutes coming just over. Oh, that. shit. So, yep. Uh, wow. And we are so appreciative of your time tonight. And um, you've told some Thank amazing you. stories. I've honestly, I've listening to you. I've learned a lot as well. Even as just a fan, I've learned a lot as well as um, to how some of my friends as professional wrestlers, you know, should probably uh, act or, you know, take things on. Um, and, you know, I've just really appreciated the way you've put things uh, as well as just, you know, explaining your point of point of views on certain things as well. It's been really great to hear sure. your side of things. And um, I can tell you would be an absolute amazing trainer and uh, all the students would be lucky to have you sort of uh, showing them the way. So that's, uh, that's well, it. Thank me, you very man. much, guys. The, the, the more Al Snow's voice and his opinions go out in public, the better the world is because everybody fucking <laughs> learns. It's all about learning. Well, at least that's that's my opinion. So, um, <laughs> and if anybody wants to follow you, you know, follow us. You can go to obwrestling.com for more information or aswa.live uh, for the school. Um, there's all kinds of information there. If you want to follow me, you can follow me at the Real Al Snow on all of the social media. Because, yes, there were some fakes, and I would message you if you were to uh, fake being me, and I'd just simply tell you, aim the bar higher. You know, <laughs> if you're going to be a celebrity, going to fake being a celebrity, try like Brad Pitt or George Clooney or somebody like that. <laughs> That's an awesome response to it, man. Um, again, thank you so much for your time.